Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. I am joined here by my dear friend and co-host, Nick Hill. How's it going, Nick? Good, man. Just wrapping up the long weekend here. Hope everyone's enjoying a long weekend. This won't be out for probably a week after until the long weekend's finished for everybody else, but it's been nice, you know, getting a little bit of work done, seeing some family, seeing some friends. How you been, dude? Yeah, same kind of thing. I live in a sort of cottage country area, so just being hyper aware of the amount of traffic that is... I mean, what recession is happening this year? Because it seems like everybody's just balling <laughs> out, filling up their boats with that overpriced gas. I mean, the lake was full yesterday. Uh, lake oh, don't don't get me started. Stuff. We tried to do this earlier and I was like, Dan, how's your schedule? He's like, well, I might have to push the recording a little bit. I'm just waiting for the Sea-Doo mechanic to get here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, blue way. So there yeah. you go. Yeah, I blew a Sea-Doo up yesterday. So. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. What are we discussing today, Nick? We've got a good episode here today. I'm really excited about this one. You know, this is episode eight. We've asked you, that's right, you, I'm talking to you. We've asked all of you to to reach out to us. You know, if you're enjoying the show, if there's something specific that you want to hear us discuss, a situation you want explored, we are happy to do it. We're not going to give you exact advice over the podcast. You'd have to call us for that. But we've had a bunch of amazing people write in with some great questions, some situations. And what I've done is I've combed through a lot of them. And I think I've plucked some good ones here, some good ones, some funny ones, some interesting ones that are very situational for a lot of people, right? These things are happening across the board to probably a lot of people listening to this podcast and probably people that haven't started to listen to this podcast yet. So we are going to start to do episodes like this, I believe, on a monthly basis where you ask and we don't really answer, but we sure do talk about it and provide our insights. So yeah, this is going to be our first episode where we you know, openly talk about situations that our listeners have written in. And I'm excited to do it. Me too. Honestly, I, I am. This is, I mean, this is why we're doing it, right? Like the reality is we're trying to create value for people who want to invest in real estate, for people who are trying to make sense of what's going on in the real estate market. And the easiest way to do that is to listen to what our audience is asking us, right? And so thank you. Keep the questions coming. Keep giving us an idea of the topics. Even if we don't answer them directly, it gives us guidance on sort of, you guys are our board of directors, right? You guys are giving us guidance on, <laughs> yeah. on what direction we need to head with this content to keep it back able to keep you entertained, to keep you coming back for more of that sweet, sweet real estate investing content. Ooh, and it's so, so sweet. On that note, this is not advice. This is strictly Dan and I reading these situations and questions and providing our insights and opinions on them. So take everything we say with a grain of salt or a handful of salt or however risk adverse you are. But why don't we dive right in, Dan? Yeah, let's do it. What I'm going to do here is I'm just going to read a little bit of an excerpt from the email, the questions, and just a first name to protect everyone's privacy. So from Zach, who again, I want to give a little shout out to Zach. Zach is the first email we ever got to the podcast email, which can be found in every episode of the show notes. So from Zach, I'm a longtime listener to the CIP, that's the Canadian Investor Podcast, and I've really enjoyed you guys' new real estate podcast too. I'm an investor in PI and a frequent listener to Bigger Pockets, one of my favorite podcasts ever. For anyone that hasn't checked out Bigger Pockets, we're kind of like the little version of them, which is- We're which smaller is, pockets. Which is- <laughs> 
<laughs> no, that's pretty good, but it doesn't have the same ring to it. I'm really enjoying the Canadian perspective and the DPI you guys do into the macro side. Also appreciating the numbers you guys get into. Thanks for the great content. You are welcome, Zach. We're here for you, buddy. His questions are worded quite funnily, so no liability on your response. But if you had a gun to your head, <laughs> literally word for word what he said, what quarter do you think rates will top out at and what would that rate be? And I'll just get the second question out here. Again, no liability on your response, but a gun to your head. Average home price is around 750K-ish right now. Where do you see it in 2027 and 2032 even? So, Dan, I'm not really a huge gun guy myself, but boom, I got a gun to your head. What are you thinking here, man? First of all, I would like to say that I'm glad that Zach used exactly two mortgage terms for those prediction dates. I think that is exceptionally strategic and I like it a lot. I like these kind of questions and I like forecasting because there's really no way that you can possibly be right. But if you are in the off chance, then you know you get to rub it in everybody's faces. And uh, <laughs> I will... You would, I will never, certainly, you would never do something like that. Though, right? <laughs> I feel like I maybe have a little bit with the top calling stuff, but like I also... You know, I, I was so bearish for so long that I was bound to be right eventually. And I will, I think that it matters. You know, these are interesting questions to answer because to me, I would say you can do all of this, but it's really just guesswork. And the reality is none of these things actually matter from my perspective because you should be buying investments that are so damn good that you don't care what price is going to be in 2027 or 2032 and you don't care what interest rates are going to be and when they're going to peak, et cetera, right? We're not timing the market here. We're buying damn good real estate investments. That's what we're about. So gun to my head, what quarter do I think rates top out at and at what rate? I think that, you know, right now we're seeing the three month, 10 year spread telling us, and you know, a pretty good predictor of recession. There's some other curves that again, like these are really sophisticated rate desk investment banker kind of things that I'm not remotely qualified to talk about, but I think it's called the 2S10S, maybe a 2S20S, something about butterflies in there. You can look all these things up. They are sort of indicating that rates should peak and we will actually start seeing cuts by December of this year, if not January of next year or, you know, so Q4 of, of 2022, Q1 of 2023. I think that based on how things are going, it wouldn't surprise me if that actually happened. It doesn't mean that I think that they're going to be consistent in their cuts. And it doesn't mean that I think that rates will ever get back to a 0.25% overnight rate. I think that we're in for an inflationary decade. And I think that it actually doesn't matter how soon they start cutting rates because they're never going back. I'd be very, very surprised if they ever went back as low as they are. And so I don't know if rates necessarily are the bull case or the changes in rates and a decrease in rates are necessarily the bull case that a lot of people want them to be causing that resurrection in the real estate market. And so on that note, in regards to price, I think that if you're saying 2027, I think prices will likely be the same as what they are now. I think we're probably going to see a little bit more downside. And then I think we'll start just that gradual recovery, kind of get back to that, you know, that 6.11% annualized growth. Or, you know, if you use a longer term average since 1982, that kind of growth at the rate of inflation, right? Those would be my answers to those questions. And that's sort of hypothetically how I'm investing in real estate. But again, I don't even like I think about these things because clients and people like this send me emails asking me for my perspective. And I analyze it as thoroughly as I can. And I try and present all of the information that alludes to answers to these questions. But I don't know. And it doesn't really matter to me on my investment decisions, right? Yeah, I love that. Really good points. I agree with almost all of them. You know, you might not be qualified to 
speak about those certain things you mentioned. I'm probably not even qualified to listen to them because I don't know what that's a little bit above my head, but I tend to agree with you. You know, what I like to do is I like to study what's happened and keep as informed as possible, make my decisions based off that, but not trying to time the market. So, you know, my response to the, what quarter do I think rates will top out at? Based off of what we're seeing the Fed do, they just raised a, that's the Federal Reserve out of the states, basically the, you know, the Bank of Canada for, for the states. We essentially follow their lead. They just raised another 75 bips, you know, industry chatter within the mortgage space is saying we should see another point to a point and a half, you know, by the end of this year, early next year. So yeah, I would agree. I'd say later this year, Q1, Q2 of next year, we'll probably see the top out and then things will start to change from there. And then again, with the, you know, going up to 27, 2032, you know, Dan just mentioned from 1982 to 2022, the average growth rate was 1.9% a year. So let's say 2%. That's what a lot of investors I know use in their spreadsheet and their appreciation line item. You know, predicting real estate five, 10 years out, long story short, my eyes is, is a bit of a fool's errand. You're not really good. I mean, people predicting years ago, you think anyone predicted real estate would be, you know, 90% up in Moncton, New Brunswick, or that we'd have a global pandemic or an invasion of Ukraine or any of these things? No. So going back to Dan's point, you know, if it's a good deal now, it'll be a good deal then. And just make sure that you're buying for both cash flow and appreciation. Because if you're just buying for appreciation, it's a losing game. Any closing remarks there? Yeah, actually, some of you quoted in one of the previous episodes, Real Estate Trent on Twitter, who's a wonderful guy and, and strip, obviously strip crushing guy. it. Or strip mall guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, he mentions the real money is made in, in capital appreciation in, in real estate. And I don't disagree with that, but, you know, Trent is an ad value investor, right? And so you can make, you know, he'll reposition, he'll buy something that's at 20% occupancy strip mall and buy it at 20% occupancy and completely reposition it, get it at 100% occupancy with long-term leases in place, good quality long-term leases in place and flip it out at the same cap rate he purchased it at, just the income has gone up and now you get a multiplying effect, right? So again, when you're heading into an economic downturn and the price appreciation environment is completely unpredictable, if anything, it's predictable to the negative, then we should really start thinking about how can we invest more sensibly? And the easiest way to do that is to focus on ways that you actually can add value, tangible, real things, not letting the animal spirits of the market guide us up in this infinite trajectory because we're starting to learn that that's not necessarily the safest way to make real estate investments. I love it. Twice in a row, real estate Trent strip mall guy on Twitter. One of my favorite follows. Go give him a follow. I think it's the second time. We, we got to have him on the podcast at some point. Yeah, we should for sure. I think he's in, too anonymous. but He is, yeah. Okay, moving on. The next one from Robert. Just want to say thank you for what you're putting out there. I started listening to TCI, that's the Canadian investor, to pick up on opportunities in the markets these days. And then I started listening to your show. It's all perfect timing, quite poignant and especially the last show where you discussed financing and B lenders. I somehow associated B lenders and subprime with a negative connotation based off of the US 0708 market, which is regrettable because I passed up decent financing a few months back solely due to the fact that it was a B lender, therefore less desirable than an A lender. Okay. We have talked about this time and time again, Dan. This seems to consistently come up. So I emailed Robert back, I actually emailed everyone back. So again, thanks for everyone's emails. I told Robert we would be doing a full show on this, which I think we'll probably try to get out in the next few weeks, because this is a big question for investors. And I'm just going to, you know, rifle off a couple points to this and, and then I'll let you jump in here. So again, we're going to keep this high level because we'll go into a full show. But B lenders, just because it's the second word in the alphabet, has somehow gotten the 
you know, the bad name. It's like the second born child is not as good as the first. That That is just not the case. You know, B lenders in Canada are highly regulated. And we actually have the 2007, 2008 housing crisis in the States to thank for that. Their regulations actually increased after that. You know, B lenders also take a much more common sense approach. They only do lower levered deals. And what I mean by that is if you're buying an A lender and you're buying a home, you can put as little as 5% down, right? With B lenders, you're typically putting what's an LTV, so loan to value. You need 65 to 70% LTV, which means you're putting 30 to 35% of that money down. So it's actually less risky. You know, B lenders are also more strict on location. So the further outside you get of a city center, the more in-depth analysis they'll do. But really, these will all be covered. What I really want to get at is... Any good investor will inevitably end up working with a B lender. A lenders cap your amount of mortgages mostly at five. I think that's the general. There might be one or two. You can get six. But if you are trying to scale, a B lender is going to come in to play at some point. You know, again, and a lot of investors are either self-employed, SMB business owners, have variable types of income. Those are all more highly scrutinized from the A point of view, right? A lenders like doctors, nurses, lawyers, teachers, they like the more standardized, predictable jobs, predictable income. B lenders play a huge role in an investor's journey. So I'm going to leave my piece there because I know we're going to have a whole episode about this, Dan, but why don't you jump in and give a couple talking points there? Yeah, I would just say thank you, Robert. I've actually been trying to figure out why people hate B lenders so much. And I actually think that your question answers my question, which is that I think that subprime crisis has really stigmatized lending outside of your traditional banks. And this kind of actually sheds a little bit of light on why that that contagion has spread. So it is interesting because, you know, if you look at the subprime loan crisis, there were a couple of different types of loans, but one of the biggest ones was an adjustable rate mortgage. So that was basically where your rate is something for a period of time, let's say five years. And then after that, it goes to a different rate, right? So these were loans where basically people were getting outside of those long-term 30-year fixed. Because in the US, you can get a 30-year fixed rate, right? We wouldn't even dream of that, having that in Canada. We can hardly even get a 30-year AM here, right? So all of our loans in Canada are adjustable rate mortgages technically, right? So like this is this huge risk that you're hearing about in the Canadian market where basically a bunch of people are like, you know, they're saying one in four homeowners would be under huge financial stress if they had to renew at current rates, right? And so basically anybody who's buying with a record low rate today in five years, they could potentially renew at the capital cost that's triple what it is today. So in that perspective, I think it's especially interesting because we don't necessarily have a, or our whole lending market is as bad as what the US market was. You know, there's obviously a little bit of differences around underwriting. Like we're not having ninja loans per se, because in the States, you were getting, I mean, I would love it if there was a ninja lender. They just basically gave you, so ninja stands for no income, no job, no assets, by the way. Which is a way cool, it's too much of a cool term for someone in that. <laughs> Ninjas yeah. back in the day did not have. Yeah, anyways. <laughs> yeah. It's a gr- but, it's a great acronym for a very misleading yeah, for type sure. of profile. Well, maybe because they're like sneaky, right? But Ah. Yeah. But anyway, I think, you know, we don't really have that in Canada. I would say you'd be hard pressed to find a private lender even who would lend to you with that criteria. So I think it's from my perspective, the B lenders do serve a very important role, especially for investors and especially for entrepreneurs and self employed people. I'm having a hard time understanding still like 
why people have such a issue with it in the Canadian market. But I appreciate the question nonetheless. And, and I think that, you know, Nick, you covered most of it. The only things I would say is there are situations where a, a B lender will use a CMHC insurance to get you to that 90, 95% loan to value. The challenge is it, you don't see it a lot because usually if you're borrowing with a B lender, you're not necessarily the type of person that CMHC or Genworth or Canada Guarantees, those are the three mortgage insurers, is going to approve. So even if the B lender says, yeah, we'll lend you on this house at 95% loan to value, CMHC is probably going to shut the file down, right? So you don't see a lot of insured borrowing on that because both in an insured situation, both the lender, the B lender in this situation and the insurer have to approve the deal. Let's move on to question number three. Yeah. I mean, great stuff. And again, guys, we'll be covering B lenders in, in its own in an entirety in an episode. So, okay. Next question from Catherine. Hey, honey, you and Dan are doing a great job so far. Oh, this one's for my mom. You and I was going to say, uh, do we get uh, <laughs> people calling us honey on emails now? Yeah, hey, you never know. There's a comment that, yeah, anyways. <laughs> hey, honey, you and Dan are doing a great job so far. I was going to call you, but I thought it would make it official. You have used the word hedge before, like rental properties are a hedge against inflation. What exactly does this mean? See you this weekend. Okay. Thanks, mom. Yeah, I mean, look, a hedge in the most simple terms provides the exact same things that a hedge in your garden does, which is privacy and a bit of protection. You want to elaborate on that, Dan? Give my mom something. Uh, yeah, sure. So <laughs> maybe maybe not so much privacy per se, but like, you know, if you know a hedge is there in front of your house to protect you, your house from the elements as an example, to protect your garden from the elements. So like that's where they originally were introduced in, in agriculture, right? You would put a hedge or a hedgerow around a farm to protect that farm from getting, you know, tons of wind blowing all of these things around. In investment, you hear the word hedge fund, right? Hedge funds are actually funds where basically they're allowed to get a, a certain amount of leverage. They're allowed to achieve what would typically be a, a completely insane amount of leverage in investing and systemically risky amount of, of leverage. You know, they're getting to two, four, five, ten 10x leverage. So they're borrowing the same way that 95% loan to value home buyer would be borrowing. But in order to legally do that, they have to hedge their investment. So as an example, you have to take a, a counter position to balance any downside risk or any adverse price movements on the asset. So as an example, if you're doing if you're going levered long in, I don't know, GameStop as an example, which is some of the or I guess a lot of these individuals were going short, let's say some of these hedge funds were shorting GameStop, you would have to purchase maybe shares in a or options in a gaming company or even options in the same position to hedge against, to, to, to manage that downside risk against that. So people talk about hedging against inflation. And the reason that real estate is often seen as an inflation hedge is because rental values typically are correlated to inflation, right? And they're a big part of the basket of what makes up inflation growth. So the cost of inflation, I think, is something like 15%, or sorry, the cost of housing on the rental side is something like 15% of that CPI basket. So in, a, in an inflationary environment, you know, not like the one that we discussed in episode one, where they can actually be kind of accelerator of that risk in a rate hiking cycle. But in a normal inflationary environment, real estate, typically the value grows at the rate of inflation, but it also provides income that is sort of pegged to what that inflation is, which is that rental income. That's why people would see it as a similar thing. So in this situation, how do we protect ourselves against inflation? Real estate is often seen as a way to do it. Love that. Hopefully that is good enough for my mother. Okay, moving on from Kurt. 
Absolutely love the podcast so far. Thanks, Kurt. Very relatable for once. I'm currently in Montreal, Quebec. Uh, the market, so this is very, this information and the back and forth between you two is very insightful and relatable. Thank you for the great content. You are very welcome, sir. My main question is do you have an Excel spreadsheet that you run your potential purchases through? And my other question when considering revenue properties, typically we are thinking plexes, but do either of you own any? homes as rentals what are your thoughts i'll take the lead on this with dan if you're all right so as far as the excel spreadsheet you know i've been through a number of these over the years there are a ton of good ones online that are up there for free people literally give them away so i really think it's either about building one out yourself or finding one that works for you i mean dan and i can you know we can provide you with some actually kurt we were going back and forth. He did send me over his one that he's currently using. Very thorough. For me, this all starts with the very basics though, right? We've brought up the term napkin math before. You know, I think if a deal makes sense on a napkin, it should make a lot more sense on a spreadsheet. So that to me is is very subjective. Of course, we have spreadsheets. Of course, we run the numbers through them. You know, I think it comes down to the kind of investor you are. If you're a real numbers guy, build one out yourself to, to capture everything or to include some things that you're not finding. If you find, but there's endless ones out there. So go, you know, scour the internet and steal one and then improve it if, if you like. As far as owning single family homes versus multiplexes as revenue generating properties. This goes back to our last point. I like to own multi-families because that to me is a hedge against vacancy. So for instance, if I own one multifamily and it is vacant for two months and I could, and the mortgage is, let's say $2,000 a month. Well, I'm out 4,000 bucks. If I own a duplex with that exact same mortgage, $2,000, and I've got someone upstairs paying $1,500 and the downstairs is open, well, guess what? My mortgage is now only $500. So I'm servicing that debt, but only a small percentage of it. So me personally, listen, I know there's a ton of people out there doing very well with single families. Personally, I think it's more of a play south of the border in the States. I like the small multifamily. That's just me. And again, that's for that hedge reason. Dan, do you want to jump in here and give your thoughts on these two points? Yeah, I think that I don't necessarily agree with the financialization of housing in the Canadian market. And I think that when you're purchasing a single family, you're not necessarily doing it because it's a sensible investment. You're more buying, you know, because you're buying into an arbitrage, which is that housing is scarce in Canada and there will almost always be excess demand as long as our immigration targets are met. And so from my perspective, that's why I don't love it. Like it almost comes down to it being a moral hazard from my perspective. It's not to say that they're not actually good investments. It's just that they're not the type of investment that I like to buy for my personal reasons, right? I think that landlords ought to be housing creators. I think that we're starting to see this big divide socially between the rental and landlord, let's say classes. Like I think that there are this almost this class war that's forming in that perspective. And you're seeing in a lot of the coastal states in the US, etc. And so I think that as landlord, you do have this almost moral obligation to use your capital to do something productive, right? And buying a single family home isn't necessarily that in a lot of cases. That's definitely an oversimplification of my perspective. But the other thing is, you know, the things that you mentioned, Nick, you're hedging downside risk, I don't I don't necessarily need to beat the dead horse on those ones. And I do think that there are investments in which 
it does make sense to purchase individual homes as rentals, such as short-term rental or medium-term rental. So like transitional houses, which do play a big role and they actually do play a positive social role for people who are, as an example, coming here to get their PR status or immigrating, coming here on work visas or whatever it is, right? In a lot of cases, those houses can actually allow people in that position to become part of a local community rather than be somebody who's staying at a hotel, as an example. And so I do think that there is an important piece, but that's sort of just to get a perspective, that's kind of how I apply that more social thought process around investing. Let's move on to the next question. Oh, and in regards to the spreadsheet, sorry, actually, I'm just going to quickly interrupt myself there. I would say the same thing, build it from scratch. There's a ton of good ones online. If you just Google like real estate pro forma, there's investment banking ones, etc. But I think that if you are coding all of the calculations in yourself, you really have to understand how a model works. And like, I actually build every model from scratch because they should be simple, but you should also know all of the inputs and outputs and how they're changing everything. And so that you can change, if you need to add like little variables to adjust certain factors, you can do that. Yeah, I love that. Let's move on to the next question here. Take it away, Dan. Yeah, sorry. Next question is Doug. Really enjoying your show so far. Thanks for the great analysis. Not sure if this is too narrow for an episode, but it would be interesting to get your take on identifying rental income, investment opportunities in Southern Ontario, and even weighing short-term rental investment returns, example, Airbnb cottages versus full-time tenants in a smaller city slash municipalities, particularly in a recession. I really like this question, honestly. Wow. Doug had the audacity to drop the R word in there too. How could My you favorite talk? word. Oh, man. Let me speak to this high level and then, and then I'll let you in here, Dan, just because – so I don't own any STRs myself. STR is short-term rental. I'm more of an LTR guy, which is long-term rental. But my partner, Jonathan, in my mortgage group, G&H Mortgage Group, has both. And I spoke to him before this because I wanted his insight. And you know, I've flirted with the idea. We've talked about it before on the show of owning an STR and the overarching point, I think, for me is I've always wanted a cottage. Okay, I would love a cottage. I think that's probably a fairly standard Canadian thing. We've all gone. We all love the water, the lake. We don't have much summer. Is it worth it to buy an Airbnb for yourself? As like, what I'm getting at is, if I want to own a cottage and I'm going to buy it with the intention of it being my cottage and Airbnb it for you know a couple of weeks, couple of months of the year to offset some of my debt servicing. That to me is a good idea. If I am buying a short-term rental, even especially just one of them, you are starting a business. You should not be buying a short-term rental thinking that it's going to be passive income because even long-term rentals, I hate to break it to you, aren't passive income until you get to a certain point. And then just a quick piece on the mortgage side of things, you know, especially during a recession, most lenders aren't really going to look or care about your potential or projected income in these short-term rentals, Airbnb, cottage rentals, whatever you want to call them. So they will be harder to fund. Now, again, they can be fantastic if it's something that you and your family are going to buy or you and some friends are going to buy and it's just going to be a part-time thing, renting it out just to offset some of it. But if you are going to buy it, be aware that you are starting a business. You're buying a piece of real estate, but there is a business attached to that piece of real estate. Yeah, my perspective is the exact same. I think that running a short-term rental is a business. It's approximately a full-time business. It's about as active from a management perspective as you're going to get when you think about real estate investments, right? And I, I think that being a landlord, a long-term rental landlord is what I would call a relationship business. Running a short-term rental is 
a relationship business and a service business, right? You're a participant in the hospitality industry. This is one of the most intense and low margin, actually, industries in the world, right? Not to say that these aren't low margin investments. I actually think that, you know, just from a pure investment perspective, if you're just thinking about if you get rid of all of the work that you have to put in in the middle, then the numbers look great, right? You can cash flow almost anything from a short term rental perspective, even from a medium term rental perspective, right? What the underwriting perspective, the lender perspective that you're describing there is one of the things that doesn't really necessarily make it an investment per se from my perspective, right? And this is because when we're talking about buying investments, when we talk about portfolio strategy, when we talk about scale, you need to be buying investments that a lender and underwriter will look at and say, yes, this is a credible investment. It's a good business to buy, let's say, as an example. Airbnb, stabilized Airbnbs haven't necessarily got there yet from this perspective. I think that those precedents are starting to be built with it becoming a more common investment strategy. And you know, you can get the long-term underwriting of those returns on Airbnb, etc. But it's not necessarily that it's not going to give you the same underwriting income unless you're claiming all of this income and running it all properly, which let's be honest, most people aren't necessarily doing that, right? And that leads me to my final point, which is for most people, they're doing this, they're almost creating risks to their portfolio into their life by doing it because number one, you're typically buying it with a higher loan to value mortgage saying, yeah, this is my second home or whatever it is, right? You're buying a cottage in a lot of cases. I think most people are doing that. And they're buying it without, with residential credit as if they're going to occupy it at some point, you know, even if it's a couple months out of the year. And then number two is a lot of people aren't necessarily claiming the income the way that they ought to. So again, if you're getting into this type of investing, it's not to say that it's wrong. It's just to say that you ought to do it right. And we're actually going to have a guest on the show eventually who will talk a lot about this stuff. But it's just something you really, really got to do well. So stay tuned. We'll get into it more. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I think just, you know, with anything business-wise, real estate-wise, scalability, right? I mean, if taking care of one long-term rental, once you get the tenants in there, and if it's a well-maintained property, it's pretty hands-off. If you are renting an Airbnb out, you know, every weekend or every week, it is not hands-off. You literally have to worry about everything from towels to cleanliness to online reviews. There's a lot that I think people don't take into account for. They just see the the margins that people talk about and who wouldn't want those margins, right? You're not going to get those margins from a long-term rental. So it's a really give and take. And I think you have to go in fully understanding what you're going to get yourself into. So let's move on. I think this is probably going to be the last question today. So sorry to the other folks. We will definitely get you on the next one. For anyone that has liked this episode, reach out. We're going to be doing these once a month and we'll try to possibly even more if, if we get enough questions. The last one today is from Justin. So Justin says, Hey, my name is Justin. I've been listening to your show and I appreciate everything you guys are doing. Very fascinating. Thank you, Justin. I was hoping for a little advice. I recently sold my house in Vancouver and I'm moving to Calgary. Big change for the wife and I. We have enough money to be damn near mortgage free in Calgary and I'm considering buying a condo on the side for a rental property. I don't think we will have exactly enough money for both our home and a down payment for the condo. Would it be a dumb idea to take a small mortgage for our personal home to afford the down payment for a rental. We can comfortably afford monthly payments. We are in our 30s and have plenty of working life ahead of us. I'm going to say two quick things and I'll let you jump in on this one, Dan. Yeah. One, I love that mentality of we're in our 30s, you know, time to hustle, right? Let's go. If you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, now is the time, right? Take those risks before you have kids or take those risks when the kids are young. I mean, I'm always the, I'd rather have one property than two. I'd rather have two than four. 
So if you can make it happen and, you know, and it's not going to crush you, then do it. Also, if you can prove that you took money from your down payment to use on your rental, you can actually write off the interest on your mortgage payment of your primary to offset the income. So Justin, I know we emailed back and forth. You and I can have a much deeper discussion, but Dan, what's your opinion on something like this? Yeah, look, I mean, as a rule, I mean, always encourage people to use leverage responsibly, but to use it, it is a tool, right? And the reality is that it is one of the, the greatest wealth building opportunities for the average person is the ability to achieve that leverage, right? It's the easiest way to beef up a return per se. You need to know what you're doing though. And it sounds like this individual does because, you know, if they've got a house that's almost paid off and they could potentially purchase a property with almost cash, yeah, it totally makes sense to my advice, actually, you know, if I was in this, or sorry, not, maybe not advice, but what I would do in this position is I would probably have mortgages on each of the property, just again, from a tax planning perspective, and from a consistency of that debt servicing perspective, you know, it's kind of nice to keep the account separate, you don't want to be like, taking income from the rental property, and then paying it to yourself through whatever structure you have arranged through the corporation, maybe a dividend or whatever, and then using that income to pay your mortgage, right? Yeah, if you're going to just pay your mortgage, like it sounds like it in this situation is going to be a very cheap mortgage, a very achievable mortgage for an individual to just repay off monthly, go ahead and do it. But I like to keep things separate. So if you're going to actually, you know, I guess you're going to have a mortgage on the condo. The only thing I don't love here is the condo, to be honest with you. And it's just that, I mean, Calgary is a little bit different, but you know, it, it is a low ma maintenance asset. Typically, I would rather see an investor get themselves into a duplex where, yeah, you are getting a little bit more maintenance, but you're spreading that maintenance between two units. You're increasing typically like, you know, apples to apples in a city like Calgary, the units in an up-down duplex are going to rent for around the same amount of money as one single condo would. So I would say, again, if you're using leverage, maybe try and beef up that return a little bit to make it more compelling of a situation. And again, you do have a little bit more downside risk management, you know, to circle it back to that concept of hedging, where in a condo market, in a market like Calgary, that does ebb and flow a lot based on investors. And we have seen Calgary, especially oversold to investors, Toronto investors, we know a lot, you know, if we're talking about sort of the micro economy in Canada, you want to be able to operate a little bit independently of, of those oscillations in price. And again, the easiest way to do that is to buy an investment that makes a ton of sense on its own. Yeah, really well said. And just to go off that condo piece, because I know you and I feel the same. And listen, condos can be an amazing investment if it's the right condo in the right place. I think Dan and I have just seen time and time again where you know there's something very alarming about some condos, condo certificates, right? There's certain things, yes, condos are a lot more low maintenance, but that low maintenance comes with fees, right? That's not just low maintenance that, hey, this is way better. I don't have to cut the lawn. I don't have to do this. I don't. Have to, there's no, you know, there's a garbage chute. But all the owners of those condos end up paying for that stuff. So if it's between a duplex and a condo, you know, I'm probably duplex every time, but that's just me. I will mention that I do have this thesis and I haven't really talked a lot about it, though I've been meaning to do some smaller videos on it. But, you know, there was this really alarming thread that I came across on Twitter in regards to condo fees and how basically the, the quality of modern builds in present day is really creating a bit of a ticking time bomb for the market in such that you know, you've got basically these giant concrete structures that have curtain walls. And if you start to see curtain wall failures, then you know, you're, you're looking at 
multi multi million dollar like in the tens in a lot of the, some of these buildings hundreds of millions of dollars of systems failures and i mean look you can see it in downtown if you're a tenant in a downtown city how many times is your plumbing backed up you know in toronto is a good example right like a lot of these condo buildings have been occupied basically as like whatever the next step after a student rental building is right you know you talk about city place or whatever it is right you have a lot of absentee landlords, to be honest with you, right? And they're like, you know, that's just sort of the nature of the market. There's, I think, almost more the qualitative side of why a lot of policy is starting to be designed to control that foreign investment capital because you want involved, you know, the government's trying to get involved landlords on the mom and pop side here, right? So you get a place like City Place where you've got landlords who aren't solving the problems, you've got tenants who don't know how to own a house and don't know anything about electricity, anything about plumbing, et cetera, dumping bacon grease down the, you know, the 40 story condo building. And it's causing grease traps on floor number nine through 13. And you get a bunch of units flooding. Like these are things that actually happen, right? So I don't love the condo asset from a longevity perspective either. I think that just the build quality isn't necessarily something you might be buying something that because it's brand new has really low condo fees today, but won't in the future. So these are things worth thinking about. For sure. I just want to touch on a point you made. So you, you said curtain wall for anyone that doesn't know what that is. That is essentially the building envelope. So the glass enclosure around the building. Now, you know, again, we'll probably save this for a whole nother episode, but we've had this conversation, right? You and I walking downtown saying, you know, what's going to happen to those five buildings that were built 20 years ago using, you know, inexpensive, almost cheap overseas product. I remember, I can't remember, it was maybe about 10 years ago where there was actually glass falling out of buildings, like literally windows falling out. So what happens when that starts to happen on a much larger scale? I'll tell you right now, you and your handyman and your GC aren't in there fixing it like you would be, you know, replacing a window or a roof on a duplex that you own. So I personally like that control aspect that I have over my own piece of property. Yeah, I think, you know, I've been wanting to put together a piece of content like this for a while where, you know, we do almost like a condos versus detached debate. And maybe we'll have to have somebody on here who really likes the condo side of things. But like, I think, look, I'm buying investments because I want to hold them forever. And I just would not want to own a modern condominium unit forever. I wouldn't. So that's my only concern with this question here. I think that his leverage strategy seems to make sense a lot. I would use that same leverage strategy. I just wouldn't buy a condo, to be honest with you. Okay. I love it. I think that's a good place to wrap up. Sorry to the questions we didn't get to. They will be in our next episode. You have my word. And a big thank you to Doug, Kurt, Robert, Zach, and Catherine, aka my mom, for the questions. Thank you so much, everybody. Yeah, maybe we should mention the rest of the people that we're going to answer questions for as well. We got Julie, Jeremy, and Rita on deck. So stay tuned for the next time. We're going to try and do this. I think we're on a monthly basis, right, Nick? So looking forward to answering more questions. Keep them coming. Keep those positive responses coming. We really appreciate the support so far. And these questions really help us to make sure that our content is tailored and working for our audience, right? It gives us a lot of indication of, of what you all are looking for. So thank you. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317 and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.